Did you get a haircut for your birthday? I got a haircut for Joe Staley. Certainly didn't get it for you. What is good, everybody? Welcome to another Gold Standard Podcast, part of the Niners Nation Podcast Network. I'm Rob Stats-Guerrera. I'm joined by Levin Black, as always. And happy to say, for the second straight year come playoff time, Joe Staley's here. What's up, Joe? Hey, what's up? I feel like um, we have to bring the mojo again. You know, they, it worked. Got him to the NFC Championship game last year. Let's see if we can go all the way to the uh, Super Bowl this season. And then win it. <laughs> yeah, that'd be nice, you know. Yeah. Uh, I haven't won it since I was nine years old. But uh, before aging, we get into it, you're Joe, yourself a little bit right now. <laughs> I think we're all around the same age, actually, the three of us. But yeah. before we really get into it, we got to celebrate something, Joe. Okay, Somebody on this show is a year older, even though he still looks like he's eighteen. That is true. It is Rob Stats Guerrero's birthday. Yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's your birthday today. Wow. Yes, it is. All right. And here's how I know I'm getting old. Because that used to be an insult, what you just said, Levin. Now it's a compliment. <laughs> how do you feel, or how did you feel when you were younger having a birthday so close to Christmas? It's far enough away that they don't overlap. I still get separate Christmas and birthday presents, which is really all I cared about. But as a parent now... Um, you know, you understand that it's a huge burden on your parents to actually buy gifts for both Christmas and then a birthday that's two weeks later. Way to be a burden on your parents, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my wife basically says, oh, I had two more Christmas gifts for you, but I forgot them. So I'll just give them to you for your birthday. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> you get the video game system on Christmas and then you get the games for <laughs> yeah, your birthday. Right. <laughs> Only if you have good behavior, though. That's true. And God knows I didn't. All right, 49ers are on their best behavior. Ten straight wins, going into the playoffs, hottest team in the NFL. First thing I want to get to with you, Joe, is something that Lev and I talked about before the year that we were really worried about, and that is the offensive line. I was really worried about the interior of the offensive line with so much inexperience there, yet here we are going into the playoffs, and this offensive line has played great this year. Yeah, I think they've uh, really found their footing in the second half of the year. Um I think going into the year, everything was uh, unknown as far as, you know, Jake Brennell hasn't started since, I think, 2018. You got two rookies in there. Well, second-year players, but first-year starters. Um, and Aaron Banks and then the rookie and Spencer Burford. And, you know, I think they took their lumps earlier on in the year. You know, McGlinchey coming back from a season-ending injury last year. Uh, I think it took him took him some time to get his feet underneath him. And, uh, you know, guys were getting frustrated a little bit with, you know, the pass-blocking stuff early on in the year. But... You know, Mike's played tremendously. Uh, I think the last, you know, eight, nine weeks, you know, he's been cutting down on on any just not only sacks, but just pressures in general. I think they've done a great job of identifying, you know, where they need to go in the run game. Um, been pretty consistent uh, when it comes to pass blocking and pressures and um, limiting hits on the quarterback. And when you have an offensive line that's performing consistently and then also gaining confidence going into the playoffs, you know, I think that was one of the things we had. In 2012, is that we felt as an offensive line um, going into that playoffs that we couldn't be messed with. You know, we were going to be the the most dominating, you know, part of that offense, uh, and we're really impose our will going against anybody. And I think the Niners have that right now with their offensive line. 
So speaking of McGlinchey, do you see anything specifically that he's doing different? Because I think it's pretty much accepted that this has been his best season with uh, broken of his ribs. career, despite coming off a serious injury that a lot of people don't even come back from and reportedly has had broken ribs for a while this season. So do you see anything different technique-wise, or has he just been able to limit the mistakes that we had seen in the past? Yeah, one thing that, you know, technique without getting too heady into it is he has, I think throughout his career, always been a pretty consistent um, setup point when it comes to pass blocking. You know, he has an angle set where he takes two hard kicks out to an angle, usually about 45 degrees off the ball. And he kind of has a setup point there and he throws his hands, you know, and it's always been consistent. And something that he's worked on is kind of putting in more variety and, um, you know, into his sets as far as the angles go. And also, like, you know, the squareness of your shoulders when you're getting off the ball a little bit more so you can accept those TE, you know, the tackle, defensive tackle, defensive end stunts. Um, that's something that he struggled with throughout his career. And I think when he got in trouble is when he floated a little bit too far or if he was too predictable with his hands. And I think in the second half of this year, you know, I think he's made a, a concerted effort to not only work on him in practice, but also present him in games, you know, just for – and that little variation doesn't seem like a lot, but as a defensive end, when you have a pretty consistent setup point that you know that the offensive tackle is going to be at when um, it's third down and you know that it's going to happen within two, three kicks, regardless of your alignment, and you know he's going to lead with an outside hand, or if you know he's going to do a two-hand punch, you have a, a, a pretty good idea of where he's susceptible. And then you just kind of read where the slides go. And I think Mike has done a good job of varying up his sets a little bit, staying a little bit more square with his shoulders when it's a man side set, and he's able to turn off those games. Um, and then I think any time that he does to get in trouble, and he also it's not just him, but it's across the line. You know, you can even see Trent Williams, and I did it in my career, but Trent Williams, you know, sometimes will get beat inside on these pick game stunts. But Brock has done such a good job of getting the ball out quickly to the flat um, when there's any pressure and not – panicking when he has pressure in his face and so I think those two combinations um go hand in hand and I I would say too and I think we can go obviously talk about this on the show but you know Christian McCaffrey and what he's brought to this offense has not just been the running game and you know him out as a slot receiver but just as an outlet um always knowing the tempo of if an extra blitzer is coming um, quickening up his release and getting out in the flat. And so that coupled with, I think, different technique um, that Mike's been using has been, you know, one of the reasons why we're seeing an ascension in his play. I give him a lot of credit because he's been pretty open and honest about the mental side of things and how he got in trouble. He was doom scrolling on social media, especially during the pandemic and how he's kind of had to battle just, you know, kind of getting down on yourself, especially after a bad play. I feel like as a mentor to him, is that something that you helped him with when you were there? Try to, you know, <laughs> that's also got to come from within. Um, you know, I kind of had a different perspective of it, though, because I was an older guy and I saw how Twitter and social media was affecting players as it was in its infancy. Um, you know, when I first came in the league and was a rookie and was making all of my mistakes, there wasn't Twitter. There wasn't this Instagram. This wasn't this immediate kind of feedback that you were getting, you know, if you really wanted to get doom scrolling, you'd have to go on some message board 
and then really like get into it and start scrolling. And you were really actually looking for someone to be talking crap about you, but um, you know, you can't, you, it's kind of unavoidable now. And I think for me, it was easy to filter through once I saw like, all right, this is probably not going to be what you think it is, you know, and everybody's not going to be sitting there going, Hey, you're the greatest player in the world. So just don't look at it and don't even let it affect you. Um, but you know, the younger generation and guys now that are in the NFL, they've, they've known this since they were in sixth grade, seventh grade, and it's affected them. And um, it's something that's become part of their life. And you have to learn how to compartmentalize. And I think as, as athletes, um, you know, for myself, and I think a lot of guys that have been successful, you know, the guys that are more driven by their own standards, as opposed to other people's standards, and also not even, you know, positive or negative, I think it's just um, learning how to filter out that noise and understanding that coaching staff, um, your own peers, and then your own, your own critique of your own play is what's most important is what's going to drive you um, than outside opinion. So, but yeah, I mean, to your point, Mike's done a great job of being open and honest with himself. I think, especially the last year, um, you know, I think it's something that he's struggled with throughout his career. Um, but he's been very open about that. And I think for him to be transparent about that, I think is, is commendable. Now he's a free agent to be, do you got any insight into the likelihood that he returns to the 49ers? Break some news, I Joe. <laughs> uh, I do not know. Unfortunately, I'm not tied into any of the inner workings of the front office. Um, you know, but just thinking critically, you know, he's going to be one of the top, you know, regardless of what the fan base thinks, he's he's one of the top tackles, top offensive linemen that are going to be out there in free agency this year. And I know that there's going to be teams, and I think the Niners are going to be one of them, that are going to be very interested in bringing his services back. But, you know, I think critically about – you know, the way this team is kind of built and where their, their money is structured. And you have Nick Bosa coming up. You just paid Christian McCaffrey. You have Debo Samuel, George Kittle. I mean, there's a lot of pieces there already. And Trent Williams, obviously, on the offensive line. I don't know. You know, I know Prague is one of the best salary cap guys in the business. But, you know, you have to get pretty creative to um, bring a guy like that back. Because I think he's going to be you know, a lot more expensive than maybe a lot of people think. And I think he's going to command a high dollar value out there in the free agency market. So I've always, you mentioned him. So I've always been curious at what point does Prague get involved in negotiations? Is he the, the money guy from the start? He sends you the offer offer, or once you got kind of a, the idea of what the contract is going to be, he's the one that then comes in to give all the little details that help. Yeah. So, you know, the way there's kind of structured is, you know, the, the personnel side, you know, everybody from the pro personnel director to, you know, even the scouts, Adam Peters, you know, John Lynch, Kyle Shanahan, you all kind of make a decision whether or not, you know, A, we want to bring him back. He fits into our future. And then, you know, Prague is very involved as far as the money and Brian Hampton as well. Um, Brian Hampton's Prague's right-hand man. And the negotiations as far as player and um, and franchise go between those two as far as making the dollar amount work and um, trying to come up with a uh, proposal that makes sense for both sides and that you can make, um, you know, work well for not only the player, but also the team. Because, you know, the number one thing for them is to create the best roster they can in their salary cap. And 
I think they've been very, very fortunate to have someone like Prague because he's done a tremendous job for the for the franchise of getting creative uh, when it comes to the money and making sure all the pieces fit. Yeah, you say that, but then what happens when Trent Williams calls Kyle and is like, "Hey, I'm about to go to the Chiefs. We got to get this. We got to get this shit done." Yeah, there's definitely some of that. Like, you know, I think that's also what you know. It's positive and negative. I mean, if you look at it honestly, you know, I think. Kyle's gotten, you know, he's fallen in love with some players and, you know, you look at it and it's probably overpaid for a few, you know, you look at Jet McKinnon and, you know, he didn't work out with the 49ers, but you can see what he wanted. You know, he's doing it this year with the Chiefs. You can see yep. what Kyle saw in him and he wasn't wrong with that, but, you know, unfortunately it just didn't come to fruition for the Niners when we brought him in. Uh, but he was a guy that Kyle had stood on the table for. It was like, we need to have him in my offense. And I think Kyle deserves that sway now. He's had a track record of guys that he's brought in. You know, Kyle Juszczyk was another guy that he said, I don't really care what it takes to get him here. Just make sure he signs here. And so I think they have a very healthy uh, relationship with all three pieces, you know, whether it be the front office of identifying players that would fit in the scheme, you know, Kyle taking a look at it and seeing what he can do creatively offensively. And then also the money guys in the back end of just making sure it worked for everybody. Okay. You mentioned him earlier and you're talking about, you know, the creativity offensively. What does Christian McCaffrey do for Kyle? Does it, does it fundamentally change the way Kyle wants to call the game? Or is it just that he's so good as the outlet that you talked about kind of creating instead of a sack? Oh, now you got a five, 10 yard gain. And that fundamentally leads to all these points that we've seen, or does Kyle actually call, things differently because he has somebody like that well I think it does I mean it's, it's both sides of that I mean you look at a guy like Christian and then first you just look at him as a running back you know he's a guy that doesn't he's a perfect running back in the system he's a one-cut guy downhill he has explosiveness he has elusiveness in the second level he understands angles you know Kyle always talks about you know he would always talk about with us I'm sure the message is the same now but you know he blocks up plays to get a guy one-on-one -on -one with a unblocked defender right and then it's up to the running back to make that guy miss. And sometimes it's with a juke. Sometimes you can't because of angles. But Christian has a great understanding of how to work against the grain and where the angles are and the best way to elude an unblocked defender. Um, so I think that piece just in itself is, is something that Kyle has really been longing for and desires um, in his running back. And then you piece into it, you know, his ability – just to play as a slot receiver and even sometimes on the outside. You know, he's a guy that can break down a corner. He can break down a safety. He's really just a matchup nightmare for any linebacker. Um, and Kyle knows that, and he's going to try to craft formations and, and personnel groupings to get him in the best position. Um, and then you look at the defense, right? The defense knows that Christian's a dynamic player, and Kyle wants to get the ball in his hands. So he'll use that to his advantage, and now he'll create concepts where the focal point will look like it's going towards Christian and he's the number one read. But now we have a guy on the backside that's winning a one-on-one -on -one when normally he would have a safety help over top or, you know, able to exploit his dead zone in, a zone, in, in the middle of the zone. Um, but one of the things that I think um, is overlooked and maybe not overlooked because obviously everybody has a stigma about like these Ivy Leagues, you know, Harvard and Stanford being smart guys, but there's one thing about being a book smart guy and there's one thing about being a football smart guy and Christian definitely has football smarts. And there was a play like two weeks ago that I really noticed was huge is um, everybody talked about that screen pass that he made um, that kind of broke that game open against the Raiders. 
And if you watch that game back, that was an unblocked blitzer. And he blitz versus a, a screen sometimes gets a little gets combobulated because of the timing. You know, as an offensive lineman, you're taught two, you set, you go set, punch, and go. He's either like a uh, one and a half or two count screen, right? And so that's the head count of the offensive lineman. But when an unblocked blitzer comes in there, the quarterback has less time to get the ball out. So he got the ball in the Christian's hands. Christian sped up his release to make sure that he had an outlet on the outside to make sure that Brock had an ability to get the ball in his hands. And then if you watch it back, like Christian, a lot of times running backs or receivers will get the ball and just go and not wait for the play to be set up. Christian had an understanding of like, hey, I sped this up, gave him an outlet, and now I have to wait. And he paused and waited for Brunskill to get out there to get in front of that defender in the alley and then start his, you know, go back to everything else he does, the, the quick bursts, the, you know, the, him, him as an athlete, he was able to let that shine, but it was came from his intelligence, really what started that play. And how about Brunskill on that play? Pulling it, he goes Superman to make the block, and then he pulls his legs in to get him out of the way for Christian. Yep, that's a coaching point. I mean, honestly, that's a, and I think, too, I mean, just a coaching point, I think Chris, Chris Furster has done a tremendous job with that offensive line this year. You know, having three, three guys that are first time really starters in the middle of that defense, you know, getting Brunskill ready to play all five positions on that offensive line, you know, having three different quarterbacks back there and not really missing a beat and also improving throughout the season. Um, you know, that's a coaching point. Definitely. That's talked about. It was uh, anytime that you go to the ground, especially in space is to tuck and roll, you know, it's basically just kind of curl up in a ball because you're not going to do anything besides be a, a dead log on the field anyway. So might as well make yourself small as possible. And um, great job by Brunskill of uh, heeding his advice and doing exactly what he was supposed to do. All right. So this season, the, the 49ers, obviously it, it's such a weird season, three different quarterbacks. You have Mr. Irrelevant, obviously winning a bunch of games here at the end, but I want to go back to the moment Jimmy got hurt. What were you thinking? I am assuming you were watching what went through your mind knowing that now you're going to the third string. Yeah, first first thoughts were obviously, well, the defense is going to have to win the games this year. You know, it's going to be a struggle offensively um, just because of my own scars of having to go with second and third string quarterbacks throughout my career. Uh, you're not expecting him to come in and, and play flawless football. Um, but I think after Jimmy went down and seeing how then Brock came in for the second half of that game. And I was like, Oh, all right, you know, <laughs> we might have something here. And then, and then you kind of go back to like, all right, well now, you know, the team has a whole entire week to craft a game plan of going against a, a rookie quarterback, you know, last pick taken, not much is expected. They're going to confuse him with different coverages, disguises and everything. They're going to have a specific game plan. And then, saw how he performed in that game and it was like wow and I kept on kind of saying and tempering my expectations for the team of being well what happens if he doesn't have the defensive performance like he's been used to having for the last three weeks you know and then the Raiders game happens and he's going to have to win this game you know the defense had a you know probably they're one of their only stinkers of the whole entire year that week and you know Brock performed admirably. I mean, he was the one that won that game. There's four minutes left in that game. He had thrown a pick the the series before, and he just is unflappable. You know, he has a tremendous amount of poise, not only just for a rookie, but just as a quarterback. You know, he's not scared of moments. He's able to go downfield and 
wipe that slate clean and uh, and move on. And I think, you know, in the last four minutes of that game, he was like six of 10 for 100 yards and a touchdown. And he was the reason why they won. And I think continuously building those bricks, you know, to create that foundation for his career is what's going to serve him well in the playoffs. Obviously going up against Seattle this week, this is the first time he's gotten to play the same team more than once. Does that favor either side, the Seahawks for having played him once or Brock, or is that really not a big deal? No, I don't think it's a huge deal um, in this situation. You know, maybe if it's a different scenario where you're a rookie quarterback and, you know, typically rookie quarterbacks don't come into a situation like Brock has come into, you know, if you're playing as a rookie, it's typically because your team the year before was trash and you're the reason why they drafted you so high and you're going to be the savior of the franchise. You know, that's why you got guys like John Elway and Peyton Manning and Dan Marino. It took them so long to kind of get their feet underneath them and, and win games in the playoffs. And they have to build up those pieces around you. And I think for Brock, it's just being the exact same player he has been. Um, you know, one of the things I think is really exciting for this team too is, is that they have a guy in Brock that sees, and I can tell that he kind of sees the game the same way Kyle does. Um, and Kyle always talked about that with me, um, as that being very important from the quarterback position as not having to explain, um, overly explain, not explain, but overly explain the, the thought process behind why he's calling certain plays and how he's building certain um, concepts and what's setting up what as the game goes on. And I think Brock has an understanding of, you know, where his issues are and what Kyle's thinking on any given pass concept and also running plays, you know. Um, so I don't think that's going to be a huge issue in this week. I think what is probably going to be an issue is just the weather. Um, you know, a weather game in San Francisco and the playoffs especially is always a, a kind of equalizer. And, um, you know, Niners haven't had a lot of success, you know, when it comes to weather games. I think about, uh, you know, the 2011 NFC Championship game against New York Giants. It was raining pretty heavily in that game. Um, and then, you know, we played up in, uh, in Green Bay, you know, against the Packers in 2014. And uh, it wasn't a weather game, but it was just freezing and uh, <laughs> so cold. And I just uh, I remember we had a pretty good offense. We had a pretty high flying offense that year. And uh, we went in there and they were barely able to scrape together about 20, 21, 23. I forget what the final score was, but, you know, we weren't able to move the ball like we were. So, you know, I think that's going to be a huge key going in this week is how do the Niners, you know, offensively handle the handle the elements. Now, you mentioned that you think Purdy sees the game the same way as Kyle. Has that enabled Kyle to kind of trust him more and maybe call or give different routes the priority? Looks like it. And that's why we've seen Purdy kind of hit different routes. He's hit the outside a lot more than Jimmy has. Do you think that that's fundamentally kind of changed Kyle, or is it just that Purdy sees those outside routes more and he has a preference towards that that Jimmy didn't? I think it has um, has something to do with that. And, you know, I think definitely he has a guy that he's trusting more as the season's gone on. Brock's gotten more starts. You know, you look at anything, you know, whether it's sports, football, business, relationships, like trust is built through, you know, consistency and and always answering the bell in certain different situations. Um, that's how you gain trust with your friends, your wife, your 
your kids, your business, anything, you know, it's all just built through consistency. So I think he has, as Brock has continued to show, you know, game in game out that he's able to do those things that Kyle's going to have more trust of calling creative concepts and, and getting the ball, maybe pushing downfield. But I think it's something that gets lost um, a lot in the narrative talking about the offenses. You know, everybody likes to focus on Christian quarterback play, you know, Debo, George, um, the guy that I think has done a tremendous job this year has been Brandon Ayuk. And I think he has been a big reason too, why they've been able to go to those more intermediate routes, you know, over either across the field or even outside is because of his ability to win those one-on-one matchups. You know, if you think about how they structure their offense, a lot of it is a, t- a lot of attention is put on those guys that I've mentioned and, and Brandon's is, is tasked to win those one-on-one matchups and beat that single coverage. And he's really developed his game as far as getting off the line of scrimmage, breaking down those secondary elements that are on him, and, and creating a, uh, you know, an outlet in the middle of the field uh, for this offense that hasn't been there, you know, since I've been there um, and since I retired and um, you know, now they have that piece that's been added to it. And he never comes off the field too. He always plays like 95% of the snaps. You know why? Like- you know why? It's because he's a he's a he's a willing and able run blocker as well. I mean, that yeah, is, he gets into it with DBs all oh, the time through his run blocking. That is huge. I mean, day one. I mean, that's probably the most important thing when you first get drafted as a receiver to this this Fort Niners team is that those receiver coaches are going to be on you about run scheme, which they probably never had in college, never even cared about the run game, and then you get there in day one. Unless you went to game. Iowa. The receiving coach is just sitting there talking about 18, 19 Zorro and why you have to dig out that safety on the or that uh you know safety or Sam linebacker in, in the box. And they put a lot of work into it. And that's a re- another reason why you know he doesn't come off the field. I love that in that long pass that Debo had against the Rams in the first game. It was like 52 yards right before the first half. Right before Debo scores, IU pancakes the last defender just before the goal line. And I remember seeing that being like, oh, I I know Kyle is showing this clip the next day because that's the way to Kyle Shanahan's heart is to block if you're a receiver. Yeah, and he does that too. I mean, the game day after the games, you know, you would think that he does that offensively and defensively. We'll have like a game review, especially over a win. You would think that it's going to be some highlight plays that everybody remembers and everybody saw, but it's going to be 10 plays that no one would even think of being important <laughs> into the game, but it really does. It shows all the details. And that's, I think again, why Kyle's been so you know, good for this team and why so many guys respect him is because he doesn't see, you know, just, these great pass schemes, pass concepts, run blocks, run blocking, uh, these runs, he sees the little things that allowed those things to happen. And then he'll highlight that. And for a guy that's a right guard like Spencer Burford, you know, you got a guy like Jawan Jennings. He knows that if he just does his role and his job, he's going to get highlighted. The coach is going to see it and it makes them play that much harder. What do you think Kyle's message is this week? Do you, do you, does he even address the fact that they're playing the th- for the third time this season that the Niners have beaten them uh, easily at home already this year and then went into Seattle and won? Or does he just pretty much treat it like any other game and say you guys are professionals and kind of ignores that aspect? No, I think there's definitely a motivational factor of going into, you know, there's something about making sure your team is not complacent on past successes. Yeah, I think the the message is definitely how this team is is 
is performing well. You know, the Seahawks have one of the best defenses in the NFL over the last four or five weeks. They've been playing really well. You know, they held the Chiefs to 24 points in their high-flying offense. Uh, they've done the last two games. I don't think they've given up more than maybe nine points the last two games. Um, and then their run game, you know, and that's going to be a formula that travels well and also is going to play well in the elements. You know, you think it's going to be a rain game. Those are two things that you have to have, and they do. Um, I think the importance for them is to make sure they come out focused, not looking on past successes and treat this as a very, you know, brand new game. And so the message all week is it's not going to be about what they've done in, the, in previous. It's about focusing in on what they're doing well right now and, um, and then trusting his guys. But I do know this, too, about Kyle is that he has the utmost confidence and, um, you know, trust in his players to perform and prepare the same way. You know, long-winded answer, but he he was um, – I love when Kyle gets in – and I only got to see it one year, uh, but I've, I've seen it and I've seen what it's, what's happened with his teams when – he gets to the end of the season, four or five weeks left to go, and he kind of puts it into like this is playoff mode now. And these guys have been there because they were going for that number one seed, and they were trying to treat it like a playoff atmosphere every single week. And so this is not something that's going to be new for these guys to turn on now that the playoffs are here. They, they've been in that mode and that moment for the last three, four weeks. Yeah, I feel like there are certain times in the game, too, where you could see it. In the NFC Championship game against the Packers, when they ran that draw to Raheem and it went for the touchdown on third down, it was right in the first quarter. I was like, uh-oh, Kyle's in his bag today. Like, he's he's cracked the code. He's got it. Yeah, that was actually – so we ran a trap play. It was like third and six. And uh, we knew we went, were going to go into that game, um, you know, run heavy. And I think there was going to be some <laughs> – situations that we were going to get third and four, third and five, maybe where we were going to call, um, you know, a run play. I didn't know it was going to be the first one. Um, I think it was the first one, maybe the second one that we had a third down situation. Um, but when he called it, I loved the play call because if you remember that year for the Packers, you know, they had Zedarius Smith and they ran him basically everywhere along that offensive line. So, they would stand him up and play him over the guard or they would stand him up and play him over the center. And um, they had a whole entire third down package where they were able to manipulate where they put the Smith brothers. And Kyle called that play basically to make sure that they knew on the other side, like we have, we have plays that get you out of what you want to do. Like the reason why you guys are successful on third down is because it's exotic kind of pass rush look. Well, we're just going to run the ball at you. And we went for uh our touchdown on that play and we didn't see it the rest of the game you know the rest of the game i know we've gotten a run heavy script and obviously we're running the ball like crazy but any other third down that we had they were just lining up in a very normal four down front and i think that's something that kyle's done a tremendous job of too is taking away what certain teams do um and what their calling card is and then using it to exploit a weakness well now that we're talking 2019 you know that team had a long win streak to start the season this team had a long win streak to end the season. They both ended up with 13 wins. So take your pick, 2019 or 2022? Well, I think 2022 uh, right now, this team is, um, you know, much more complete team. You know, I obviously love the team that I had in 2019. You know, we had some star power that was there. Um, it was a really close locker room. But I think when you look at what this team has, there's no real weakness. You know, I think even the year before last year, 
you know, the, the secondary was always kind of a question mark going into every game is how they were going to perform any given Sunday. And in this week, they've been a real strength. Yeah, they look at the defensive line, obviously, linebacking core is probably the best in the NFL. Um, and then offensively, you know, yeah, the running backs, yeah, everybody, everybody along the whole entire, at every position, you got star power there and they're all playing at their peak. And I think too, one of the things that they have going for them that doesn't get talked about and gets overlooked is the special teams and the addition of Ray Ray McLeod and what he's done to be able to flip the field and the punt return and also kick return. You know, the coverage units have done a tremendous job this year. And that's a real X factor when you get to the NFL and the NFL playoffs, um, the ability to flip the field and, and play consistent. And then, you know, also we talk about special teams um, in offense and defense and everything, but, you know, the turnover differential. Uh, every year as players, we get these off-season programs and we get the OTAs and they go through a million different meetings and guys get nauseated and tired and fall asleep in them. But every single year it starts with what happened last year in the turnover differential. And you look at the top 10 teams usually – in that category are the top 10 teams that are at the end of the year. And it's a real um, measuring stick of where you stand as a team of playing team football. And the Niners have been number one. They finished the season number one in that category, which we did not in uh, 2019. So this is a complete team right now. And I think they have you know everything going for them uh, into the playoffs. Yeah, they were minus 39 in turnover differential since Shanahan took over, which is insane. That's just an incredible number. But I think the 2022 team is so much better just because, I mean, the real weakness of 2019 was left tackle. I think yeah. it's pretty obvious that they're just <laughs> way better this year at left tackle than they were in 2019. I would agree with that because, I mean, their best <laughs> left tackle in 2019 only played, I think, like seven games. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was freaking smooth, man. Like, you didn't even hesitate. Was it that obvious that I brought it up? Yeah, I mean, I just listen with my ears and I just kind of respond with my head. <laughs> um, you mentioned a defense. I have I meant to start with this. I forgot. You told the story on KMBR about Nick Bosa, about how across from Nick Bosa, when he wants to pump himself up, he just says his own name, which is absurd. Yeah. My son is a huge Niner fan. He plays with the Niners franchise on Madden. I can always tell when he's on defense because from the other room, I'll hear him. Bosa, Bosa, Bosa. <laughs> yeah. It's the weirdest story ever. Do you have any other weird Nick Bosa stories for us? Not really weird Nick Bosa stories. I mean, his whole personality is kind of weird. He's pretty unique. Um, it's one of the more quiet individuals I've ever met, not just as a football player, but just as a human being. Um, you know, I think... You know, that too, that story was a one-time thing. It wasn't like he was doing it every single time. He <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, it was in a two-minute drill. <laughs> and I heard him just like across the line of scrimmage mumbling something. And I didn't address it till afterwards. And I was like, what the heck were you saying? He was like, oh, I was just saying my name. And I was like, all right, cool, man. <laughs> Did you try to steal exactly. that? So they're going, Joe, Joe, Joe. I just texted him actually a couple of weeks ago. And I was telling him how I like this newfound you know, outgoing version of himself. Cause you know, I think he does, he does have, or he had in any kind of interview session, or if he was doing a Q and a with anybody, I think he had a, a limit of 10 words that he was allowed to say, <laughs> um, a self-imposed 10 word limit. And I think now he's gotten to the point where maybe it's 2025. So he's opening up a little bit in front of our eyes and, 
and it's exciting to see. Well, he gives the speech on Saturdays, I think Kyle said this year, which is like, like you said, to hear him in his rookie year, you never would have imagined that, but apparently he's sort of stepping into that role a little bit. That is news to me. And if that is a hundred percent accurate, I, I need to be at one of these Saturday <laughs> Nick Bosa pump up speeches because I cannot imagine what he would be saying. To you. All right, guys, <laughs> we're going to go play a game tomorrow and it's, it's going to be, going to be physical. <laughs> I want to make sure everybody gets sleep and I'll see you at the game. Um, I'm going to go in my room and read for a little bit and go to bed at 830. I advise everybody else to do the same. And I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> Let's go get him. Um, Speaking yeah. of the 830, like, how does he play night games then? <laughs> he sleepwalks. He sleepwalks. Can you imagine if he was actually up for those games? Well, Kyle said, like, if you ask him to go out to eat, that he'll like consider like, well, if I go out to eat and I eat this restaurant food, I'll be the, a lot of inflammation and it'll really affect me on like the 63rd snap of the game. He really like thinks about it like that. Yeah, he's a machine. I mean, he really is. I mean, honestly, we kind of joke about it, but he is. I mean, he just eats, sleeps, breathes football. Everything in his life right now revolves around how he can best maximize his his output on the on the football field. And it's not a surprise the success he's having. You know, when you have a guy that's regimented like that and has a, you know, I'm doing a lot of training right now with guys uh, getting ready for the NFL, um, working with guys from college, going into this little dead period between their college seasons and getting ready for the NFL draft. And, you know, my message to them a lot is to find their routine. You know, you have to find what works best for you and then really dedicate the next hopefully 12, 15 years of your life to just being that consistent machine you know being that person that just every single day you have something that works for you and you just commit yourself to it you know for me it was one thing you know for nick it's something else but guys that have lasted a long time in the in the nfl typically have some kind of routine that they've uh committed themselves to and he is taking it to a, a new extreme but he's been doing this since i think he was 10 years old so it's just what he knows defensive player of the year hundred percent. Yeah, I don't see how any way that he cannot be the defensive player of the year. I mean, if you look at MVP as being a quarterback kind of award of the best, you know, the quarterback of the best team, basically, you know, he is the best defensive player on the best defense in the NFL and has the most impact for that defense. So I would, I don't, I don't see how you can make a case for anybody else. I know Micah Parsons gets a lot of, praise of what he's done in that defense but there's times when he disappears and um you know i think nick is such a catalyst for what they do not just in the past game with the sacks but also how they how they play in first and second down stopping the run um all the stuff that's not really seen he does a tremendous job for them and it's also like in the big moments when they need a play he seems to always if he doesn't make it himself He's always there pressuring the guy, forcing the play to go somewhere else. Like he mm -hmm. steps up at the biggest moments. It's not just like, oh, one sack in the first quarter. Yeah, and I think that's too what's, um, you know, defensive players, unfortunately, good and bad, but they're, they're judged a lot based off of sacks. And I think everybody's kind of judged off of some sort of stat. 
Um, but he affects us, like you said, any other way, um, whether it be just holding the point in the run game. So the running back has to cut back a little bit faster than he normally would, allowing Fred Warner, or Dre Greenlaw, or anybody to make a play, you know, for a one, two-yard gain. I think also the pressures, and you look at, you talk about turnover differential and the ability of the defense to, you know, get those turnovers, they come from pressures. You know, you saw it in the Raiders game when he was able to put that tackle in the quarterback's lap to get that interception to, to win the game for him. And he's done that, you know, game in, game out. The whole entire season is to affect the game in any way he can. As a former left tackle, what did you find harder to deal with? That Nick Boza, you know, he's a technician, has the power, or the speed and agility of like a Micah Parsons? Which one did you hate to deal with more? Oh, Nick Bosa style. You know, guys like, because when I was in the league in my prime, it was like Von Miller. You know, guys like him were the guys that came off the edge super fast and speed. But um, for me, I was an athletic tackle and I was able to kick back and keep up with them and, and stay in front of them. I didn't have to turn my hips and bail because of their speed. Um, but when you have a guy that is so technical, understands angles, um, and also Nick has a great burst off the ball. He really threatens your outside. He might not have the 40 speed, but his first two steps are just as quick as anybody else in the league. Um, you know, he's a, he has everything. And I think, you know, the only person I can kind of compare him to as far as giving you just a, such a unique skill set that makes you you know, kind of question your technique and change a little bit was Alden Smith. And I faced him in practice as well. What made Alden so dynamic was this, he was unconventional. You know, he wasn't someone that you could really game plan for. He just kind of had to react to what he was doing. Cause I don't think long Alden, arms. he had long arms, but I don't even think Alden knew exactly what he was doing either. <laughs> he was just, he was just running at you and just kind of playing football, you know, kind of like street ball. You know, he would get in weird angles with his hips and, if you overset maybe like an inch or two, he was able to find that crease. And he was so strong too with his upper body and his long arms, like you said, that he would get in, you know, different situations. But Alden definitely benefited from playing next to Justin Smith. And their tandem was unbelievable. And I think Nick does a lot of his work just as a one-on-one -on -one pass rusher. And he's consistently either pressuring, you know, through the guy, you know, he does a great job of working his hands to come underneath. And then he also does have the speed to get over top as well. When you and Trent both immediately said that Alden was the toughest guy you faced, that to me, I was like, okay, I didn't realize just how much of a freak that dude was. So that like jumped out to me because immediately both of you were like, yep, one, two, three, Alden, end of story. Yeah. Yeah, and it's exactly what I was just saying about his his uniqueness as a rusher. You know, he, was, he wasn't someone that you had seen ever before. You know, he had the physical tools, obviously, with his arm length um, and his strength, and he had a good get off. But he was just he just had a way of getting you off balance in some way. Like there would be different different times in practice where I felt like I had a good set, I had a good setup point, my hands were good, and I'd end up with him behind me and yelling sack at the quarterback. And I'm like, how the hell did he even get back there? Um, it would happen in a flash. And he was just someone that always gave, you know, myself and then also, you know, Trent um, difficulty. My favorite thing about Alden was when he would literally just sprint off the field and to the bench as is like, if you got a sack on third down, it's the, the first player since, yeah. First player since Martin Hanks to make me laugh with their like celebration. 
Yeah, that was the greatest. I remember that. I think it was a Monday night game when he did that the first time. Bosa's uh, celebration stinks, by the way. Can you tell it? Like, <laughs> he's got to get better than that. But I will say that at least he has his own unique celebration. <laughs> There's a lot of guys that just copy other people. I mean, he has his own unique thing, him and his brother do. So, I mean, it's a brother thing. I get it. If I could go back to the Seattle game, I'm scarred by the Seahawks. I always will be. They'll always make me nervous. I know that Pete Carroll's going to pull something, some trick play, some special teams play. Like, I'm just terrified of it. It's going to be crappy weather game, maybe a one-score game. He's going to have some sort of thing in his bag, and they're going to cut to him on the sideline with that shit-eating grin on his face, chewing that gum. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, I'm nervous. Did you, see, did you see the mind games he already tried to play, Joe? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think the Niners are expecting that as well. And I think everybody's expecting that. Like you said, I think it's going to be a special teams thing. You know, he has history of doing that. He threw a fake, fake field goal for a touchdown in an NFC Championship game one year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think he's definitely going to have something on his bag, and he knows it too. You know, in his own press conference, he said, "Unfortunately, we're playing the 49ers." So, you know, he knows he's going to have to keep it close, make it grimy, and I think the the 49ers have to come out and, and start fast. You know, they can't have a, a game like they did, um, you know, against the Raiders or even before when they were playing the the Seahawks in Seattle. You know, they started pretty slow offensively in that game. And, you know, if you go into a, a halftime where you have, you know, the game is a one-score game, that's where it gets kind of dicey when you're playing a Pete Carroll team, um, especially with the way they like to run the ball. If they're able to stay in that, you know, Kenneth Walker run first um, play action, big shots downfield, like what Pete Carroll and that offense have liked to do for so many years, you know, then it's going to get interesting. But you know, I think the Niners are definitely going to come out firing. They know the stakes, you know, this is the year. Um, they made no qualms about it from the front office on down by acquiring Christian McCaffrey. It's, it's this is the time to, to go chase that sixth. Now, does Kyle hate rain? Because he seems like a guy that anything that takes him away from just a normal, this is what the situation is. I know what it is. I can run my offense. I, I feel like he's the type of guy that hates anything that takes away from that. I don't think anybody in football enjoys the rain, you know, maybe besides like Buddy Ryan and 85 Bears, um, you know, maybe the 2000 Ravens where it was just a completely defensive minded football team. Um, but no, I've never, Kyle's never given me any hint of like, he's changing anything he does, um, or he's not allowed to run an offense anymore because of any kind of weather. Um, but as a player, I mean, it definitely does, um, affect, you know, I think, especially if you're very dependent on the passing game, you know, the wind and the rain that can cause some issues. Um, so if the, the weather definitely is playing a huge element in the game. You know, and I think, again, it's going to come down to, you know, being able to run the ball and, and get the ball out quick in the passing game. And that's a game that the Niners have been uh, playing for a long time. And I think they're well-versed in how to, how to handle those elements. One of the things Pete said that caught my ear yesterday was he was asked about the Niners D and his exact quote was, they don't fool you. I've heard other people talk about this, how D'Amico doesn't necessarily run like the most exotic scheme. Mm-hmm. We've seen the, like the Raiders put up a lot of points. Is it the kind of thing where like 
because they don't have that much variance, if you find something that works, you can sort of punish them all day. I think the Raiders did a tremendous job um, early on in that game of kind of taking away the strength of the 49ers defense and using it against them. Um, you know, you look at this defense and what they are, they're, they're, they play with their hair on fire. They're penetrating up front. They're, they're disrupting double teams and gaps, and they're allowing the linebackers to kind of roam free. And the Raiders did a tremendous job of kind of running a lot of delayed handoffs, delayed runs, and using that penetration against them, allowing the defensive players to get upfield past the running back and then allowing, you know, Josh Jacobs to, to kind of roam free in that, that three to four yard area and, and try to make, and try to make a guy miss. Um, you know, I think one thing that the Niners defense have done a tremendous job of this year, and they will have to continue throughout the playoffs is they don't miss a lot of tackles. You know, they're a pretty surefire tackling team out in space. Um, and I think that does come from a, the players, but also comes from coaching. You know, it comes from people understanding it takes everybody on the field to rally to the ball. Um, and then the players to understand where their help's coming from and using those angles to try to attack, you know, downhill and eliminate uh, those big explosive plays. So I think the, that coupled with um, some of those broken plays and Josh Jacobs just being one of the top running backs in the league, you know, allowed them to have a little bit more success than other people do. And then once you're able to establish that early, you know, I think every single defense, not just the Niners, are going to have difficulty, you know, with play actions and um, getting over aggressive. And so I think it was actually a perfect situation for the Niners in that game to have a kind of a hiccup on defense and for D'Amico to use that as a learning experience. And even though they won, you know, to say that this is not good enough, get guys refocused in because that's a real thing too. I mean, as players, once you start having success, you know, I saw it throughout my career when we have, eight, nine game winning streaks, you start getting a little complacent. You don't want to, but it's just, you know, the urgency maybe isn't there as if you're on a two, three game losing streak. Um, and so when you have a bad performance, it's another opportunity for a coach to use that as a huge learning experience. And I think obviously you saw against the, you know, the Cardinals last week of how the defense responds. Now I want to shift gears a little bit because uh, I think you can give an interesting perspective as a former player. Yeah. At what point does the draft capital invested in a certain player no longer matter? And by that, I mean, at what point has Purdy done enough to be seen in the, in a locker room as kind of the quarterback of this team? Oh, he already is the quarterback of this team right now. I think, you know, from a player's perspective, anybody that is out there, you'd be doing disservice to them if you're thinking that, hey, he's just a stopgap. You know, when we had Jimmy Garoppolo, in 2018 and he went down and we had to go through you know cj bethard and nick mullins throughout the year we knew those guys were our quarterbacks no one's going to come and rescue us you know we have to do what we have to do in that situation uh, to make things right and everybody now in the situation they are winning with brock uh, the team that's built up around them you know he's their quarterback and no one is you know there's it's very, uh, very rare. I think people talk about maybe like, definitely as a player, you have like, trying to formulate what I want to say here. Um, you definitely have relationships. Like, you know, I was very close to certain players uh, throughout my career um, that were personal relationships, you know, as friends and, um, and teammates I loved. 
Um, but as players, you know, there was guys that I did not like as players, you know, that I played with as, as strictly just as a football player. Like I didn't trust him as a football player. I didn't want to play next to him as a, as a football player, but I loved him off the field. Um, you know, those are, they're very compartmentalized when it comes to your relationships with guys and anybody that stands on that field with you, especially as a quarterback, you know, everybody's going to be all the way around. So do you think he's earned the right to be kind of given the first shot to be the starter next season with how well he has played? Or yeah. is that something you just, they're going to go into the season and Trey Lance and him are going to battle it out in training camp. And it's kind of like all square. Everybody gets equal snaps and all that. I think it's all performance business. You know, I think it's, performance business of what you've done for me lately. And I think if, especially the last five weeks of the season, how they've gone um, and performed with Brock. And then, you know, as the playoffs continue on, you know, if they go out there and lay a stinker in week one or this first week of the playoffs and, and don't perform against Seattle, then yeah, I think you go into the off season saying, all right, we have a great capable backup in, in Brock. Um, but we've invested our uh, our future in, in the tray, and we're going to give him all the opportunity to win that starting quarterback job. But if they go on and go to the NFC Championship game or the NFC or, or the Super Bowl and win a Super Bowl, I mean, this is Brock Purdy's team. You know, it's all about. Yeah, you can say like, hey, the, what have you invested in a quarterback? But you know, every single season is a new season, and at the end of the day, regardless of where you drafted a guy or how much you paid him in free agency. Uh, it's a re results performance-based business. And if you have a guy that you want to screw well with or you've gone deep into the playoffs with and has been a reason why you've won and not just managed it, um, then I think you have your answer right there. And we don't have to make any statements. We, I think there's like a tendency to people to want to award stuff, right? Brock can't just be playing well and leading the team right now. He's got to be the starter for next season. We got to decide right now. And what I keep telling people is like, just sit back and enjoy it, man. This is a yeah. third string, seventh round rookie quarterback. It's kind of house money at this point. So let's just enjoy what's happening and we can worry about next year, next year. Now, I think that's one thing that, I mean, if you look at the quarterback situation for the Niners um, that Brock definitely has working in his favor right now is just what you said, there's, there was no expectations for him to come in and do anything, you know, and the fact that he is performing um, kind of leads to this narrative that he is the savior of the franchise when, you know, I think Trey coming in obviously had the weight of the world on his shoulders. You know, they had given up so much draft capital to get him here and he was going to be the guy that was going to unlock just all this different, you know, innovation and offense and, he, we didn't get to see that because he got injured, unfortunately. And then, you know, Jimmy has his own stuff with this franchise and fan base that people are upset about just because of the 2019 season and coming so close and feeling like, you know, he was the reason why we didn't win that Super Bowl. You know, I think if you were to look at the way Jimmy was playing before he got injured and also the way Brock's playing currently, you know, they're pretty similar, you know, and this offense and, and this team are, are, are pretty similar teams, but, Brock has the ability and he has the, he has the, um, the kind of, uh, not the ability, but he has the, the convenience of not being um, put all these expectations on. And so I think guys overlook sometimes when he has a errant throw that gets picked off over the middle. Um, and, 
know, that's not taking away anything from what he's done. I think he's performed tremendously. Um, but it's also one thing about narratives and, and how they resonate with certain people just based off of what the expectation were in the beginning. A calm, reasonable quarterback take. <laughs> Holy, I didn't think those existed. <laughs> Joe, I could keep you all day, but I know we got to let you go, but I'm so grateful for you for stopping by and spending so much time with us. We really, really appreciate it, not only this year, but last year too. Hopefully the Niners win and we can keep it rolling. And, and you know, if you can come back next week, if they win, that would be phenomenal. All right. Awesome. I appreciate you guys having me on as always. And, uh, yeah, enjoy the game on Saturday. Thanks again to Joe Staley for so much of his time. He was absolutely fantastic, and we always appreciate him stopping by. Before we wrap up, I just want to let you know we are going to keep the guests coming here on Niners Nation. Former Seahawks linebacker Lofa Tatupu is going to join us for the crossover podcast. That's going to come out early on Saturday morning to help break down the wild card matchup against the Seahawks. So, again, it is the perfect time. Rate, review, Follow the Niners Nation Podcast Network. I promise you, we will earn part of your day. Thanks again for listening, and go Niners. Make it all sleep.